Welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show. I know it's been a little while, so thank you for keeping tabs on the channel over the last few weeks. In case you weren't aware, I've been hosting a regular nightly, uh, well, Sunday nightly, so once a week, a regular once a week talk show on the Life FM network where I've been able to talk about all sorts of topics, everything from uh, climate change to mental health to relationships to uh, homelessness and many more things besides. So if you've missed that, uh, again, that happens every Sunday night between 7 and 9 p.m. Um, and it is on the Life FM network. So just to give you a bit of background on what I've been up to, now we can get back into learning how to learn. And this is week three of our four-part series based on the free course that you can do via Coursera of the same name, Learning How to Learn. It's one of the most popular courses in the world. And I thought I'd share some of the principles with you just so you can get a taste of what it's about, because I feel like learning how to learn is one of the most valuable skills that I've ever picked up. So we're going to go through uh, week three now, and it starts off with procrastination and memory. And the first points to understand around procrastination uh, is to recognize that it's not always a bad thing. Now, the thinking here goes that we've all got a limited amount of willpower. And so if you are constantly fighting against the power of procrastination all the time, you're eventually going to burn yourselves out. But there's some very interesting thinking around procrastination. And there is a warning, of course, included that often procrastinating about the important things um, has very little effect in the short term. But of course, in the long term, that's when we strike issues. And in my case, uh, I actually feel like the area that I've understood this the most was in terms of my own um, physical health and fitness. Um, I'm not, or at least I wasn't traditionally one for doing anything in terms of gyms and workouts and that sort of stuff. But I had a sense having talked to some older friends and relatives that there was a massive difference often between uh, like a 70 year old and a 70 year old, you know, an 80 year old and another 80 year old. The overall health and well-being of each individual could vary quite a bit. And so I started to realize that one of those things was down to how physically active they'd been. If you wait until that part of your life, procrastinating, getting those things in order up until that point, you're going to be in big trouble. So this was the idea for me anyway. Make sure I don't get myself in that kind of situation. Now, one of the things that goes on inside the brain that's important to understand is that when we procrastinate, if you're doing a brain scan on somebody, what you're going to notice is the same response that you would have if that person was in physical pain. So it's interesting to understand what's going on in our mind that we usually have an association of something being painful, which is what gets in the way. Now, we're going to unpack a little bit of what you can do to get around that painful um, association, I suppose, in a little while. But to begin with, I just think it's important to recognize that, that the pain centers of the brain light up when we have something that we don't want to do. Now, another thing that was interesting in this section of learning how to learn was that there's a very similar pattern within the brain, within our behavior, as there is with addiction when it comes to procrastination, because it's still used as like an escape from something unpleasant that we don't want to do. So instead of facing reality, as it were, well, we can procrastinate. And in some sense, that thing goes away. Though just like with normal uh, chemical addiction, I suppose you could call it, that's not a very suitable long-term fix. So what can we do about it? Well, Barbara Oakley, who is one of the lead psychologists or, or lead researchers, rather, that presents this material, introduces the idea of zombies. 
And it's a really helpful metaphor because if you think about a zombie, it's not exactly known for being a, a deep thinker, right? It's something that runs on autopilot. And that's her way of breaking down our brain's automatic responses to things. And so any habit or any sense of uh, procrastination arises from, first of all, these, well, from four, four particular elements. And the first one that she talks about is the cue. This is the cue to the automatic response. Now, it could be an email that comes through. It could be, um, you know, a phone call, something like that, a certain time of day, whatever it is. But there's a particular cue that triggers the automatic response. And that's another way of looking at the zombie, as, as uh, Dr. Oakley puts it across. Then the second thing is a routine. So what is it that you do when that cue happens? What is your coping mechanism? And of course, for those of us who have something we're procrastinating over, uh, that is a very interesting point to be aware of. Then the third part is the reward. What do you give yourself in exchange? And I think that's really important to understand that usually when a person procrastinates, it's not, I won't do this and then I'll just sit around and do absolutely nothing. Um, it might even just be maybe you watch TV, maybe you uh, get yourself out of the house somehow, read a book, um, play a video game, something like that. But there's something in place of that thing that you should be doing. Now, that's the reward that you need to be aware of because that's what you're giving yourself to make it worthwhile. And again, in the short term, that can work pretty nicely. And then the fourth part behind all of this is the belief. And that can be one of the most powerful things to work on. If you've listened to any of my podcasts previously or my thoughts around psychology and interviews that I've done in the past, one of the most helpful things I've learned is recognizing how true it is that our thinking creates our experience of life. And so if you have a belief about something, it might even just be, I could never do it. It's a waste of time. Well, your mind is going to make that thinking true. In other words, you're going to experience that belief over and over again, reinforced by the patterns that you have put in place. Now, something I would add to this that wasn't covered in the original course material too, but it struck me as a challenge to ask ourselves, do you really want this thing? Now, there's a lot of stuff in life that we have to do that we don't want to do. But one of the most challenging aspects that I've tried to embrace over the last little while is to be really integral about the things that I really want to be doing or not. Nobody wants to clean the house. Well, most people don't. Maybe you're one of those people who loves it. Uh, nobody wants to have to clear their emails or have that awkward conversation perhaps with a colleague. So we're not saying that there's no place for that. But what I would say is that that can't be the primary wellspring of your life. You can't be primarily living in this place of the things that you don't want to do because you're going to be tapping into this procrastination all the time. And then, of course, that sense of dread about what you're doing, you're going to have to rely on willpower all the time. All those things are going to slowly erode your sense of living a powerful and meaningful life. So when I was going through this, that was the question I started to ask myself. If I'm procrastinating something, do I really want to be doing this? And one of the best examples I had very recently was uh, regarding some rehearsal for an upcoming musical performance. I had some very complex uh, vocal harmonies that I had to learn. You might have heard me talk about this in some earlier episodes. And if I'm honest with you and with myself, part of my challenge was recognizing that I really wasn't that keen on doing it in the first place. Some people love those particular challenges and, and rise to it. I just didn't draw a lot of enjoyment out of it. And so I found it quite a tough bridge to cross, being aware of the fact that I didn't really want that thing. 
Well, let's look outside of that for a moment. If you're talking about changing your physical health and you're looking at changing your diet or exercising more often, now, do you really want that thing? Do you really want that changed diet? Do you really want to not be able to eat the things that you used to be able to eat? See, if that's your belief, it's very unlikely, in my opinion, that you're going to make that a meaningful lifestyle change. The more helpful thing in my experience has often been to think about what is it on the other side of this that I really want to get to? Is it a sense of health and well-being that's important to me? Is it looking down the timeline of history, basically, and seeing yourself with friends and family and still being able to interact with them? So maybe you're a parent and you want to be able to run around with your children at, you know, not just now, but in, in future years as well. That could be a far more powerful motivator for you than simply, I'm not going to do this. I am going to do this from now on, something like that. So anyway, that's an unpacking of this idea of the automatic responses that we have or the zombies that Barbara Oakley was looking to communicate. And so what are we going to do about it? How do we get over this? Now, on this next part, I will say that I applied this principle and I found it to be particularly helpful when I had some challenging work material that I had to go through because it was very administratively based. And if you know me at all, you'll know that I am not administratively based. So her approach was to look at something from a process versus product point of view. Now, you remember early on, I talked about within the brain, there is a response very similar to being in physical pain when we have to do something that we really don't want to do. That is a fixation on the product. What is the thing that I have to get, the thing that I have to do? One of the strategies that gets communicated throughout this particular section of learning how to learn is that instead of focusing on the product, focus on the process. Now, this goes hand in hand with another technique from a little earlier on that's called the Pomodoro method. And this is a way of just blocking out a chunk of time to say that I'm going to work on this particular thing for 25 minutes, 20 minutes, something like that. The principle here is not necessarily how long you're spending on it, particularly if you're new to this and it's a task that you've really struggled to do in the past. It's more based on the idea that you are better to say, well, I'm going to spend 20 minutes on this thing, regardless of the output, and just get myself in the habit of doing it, right? So process rather than the product. Uh, it's also connected with the idea that you may have experienced as well, and this was certainly my, uh, my experience going through this more challenging work material I mentioned earlier on, that you often do feel better once you've started. It can be the idea of starting which is particularly painful, and then once you're underway, it's not as bad. I'm not going to tell you that it's going to turn every unpleasant task into the greatest thing you've ever done in your life, but I can certainly say that that's true. And knowing that I'm only going to spend 20, 25 minutes on it means I don't feel trapped in something. And then the best part, going back to this idea of automatic responses and, our, and dealing with our zombies, is think about the reward. What are you going to give yourself? Learn how to negotiate with yourself. If you've had to do something that's particularly unpleasant for you, what's your reward? And it can be just maybe watching a YouTube clip. Uh, it can be, well, whatever you like. Reward yourself. Treat yourself. Make sure that there's a reward in play, not just a kind of pat on the back for yourself, unless you're really deeply self-motivated, in which case you probably don't need this episode. So thanks for listening anyway. Now, moving on to the next part of how we uh, manage to overcome procrastination and harness the power of our automatic responses. Oakley talks about this idea of the power of lists. Now, in the very beginning, you'll, you may recall, I think episode one, we talk about how your brain goes to work even when you're asleep. Giving your brain a list before you go to sleep 
can help direct the automatic functioning of the brain while you're sleeping. It sounds incredible, I know, but it's very true based on the research at least that they have demonstrated. Now, I've got to be honest with you, this is the thing that I have not tested as much, but I just want to share with you as uh, transparently as I can what's in the course material and see what stands out to you to try first. Remember that you're not going to transform all of your behavior in one go. What instead you'll need to do is look for the one or two things that resonate the most with you and build from those points onward. So all to say, the power of lists. What do you want? I'm actually going to give this a crack because I've done it at the start of the day before and this will be the next thing that I try to apply. Your brain will go to work trying to order your thinking and get rid of all the stuff that was unhelpful during the day and order those things that you did take on board while you're sleeping, helping you take on a new day with a greater sense of clarity and purpose and ability. So that is the power of taking li uh, of lists. A few other tips that were shared was that it's as important to schedule a quitting time as it is to schedule a start time. You've got to know when you're going to be quitting. It's very easy to work all the time at the moment, and there is an abundance of research that says that past a certain amount of time applied, you become less productive per hour. Now, those of us who are more task-driven, shall we say, find this harder to accept. There may well be some who are outliers in this respect, but everybody thinks they're an outlier. Have you noticed that? Oh, I'm not like that. No, man, I can just keep going. Well, it's very important to know for yourself, when are you going to quit? When are you going to make time for yourself? Continuing to push past that point can often lead to more mistakes, going around in circles and generally less productive or insightful thinking. So be aware of that. Quitting time is important. Uh, Daphne Gray Grant had a famous thought on this, which has been turned into a few books. So you might have heard a variation on it, which is the idea of eating your frogs. Uh, and in her case, she talked about eating your frogs early in the morning. If you have something that is particularly difficult or onerous, then make sure you do it first thing. Um, I have had limited success with that approach. I know that it's true. I haven't always managed to knock those things out of the way first and foremost. But nevertheless, I can see there's some wisdom to it. Maybe I just really don't want to be doing the things that I have been putting off. Not really sure. Anyway, that's stream of consciousness for you. And lastly, too, within this section on procrastination, we're reminded of the law of serendipity. And I love this because this comes up in a whole bunch of different areas of life. And so I'd encourage you to keep your eyes open for it as well. But it's simply the idea that lady luck favors the one who tries. And in other words, the more stuff you're trying, the more likely you are to see things come together for you. And I've seen other research, if I think back, I believe, to positive psychology, but people who consider themselves to be lucky versus those who were unlucky tended to, those who were lucky at least, tended to genuinely just be more active at doing different stuff. They tried more things, and so as a result, just through sheer weight of numbers, more things came together. Now, that might sound a little hit or miss, shotgun approach, a little randomized, but I feel like it connects to a powerful lesson I've learned in my own life as well. So you might have heard me speak on this before, but I did pretty well at school to begin with. And then as time went on, I became less and less interested in what I was doing to the point where I just kind of breezed through at the end. Now, what I had learned at school, though, was that my success was very much based on my own intelligence and that if I was smart enough, then I would succeed every time. It can make a person very risk averse, and I'd encourage you to check out Carol Dweck's work on the growth mindset to give you an understanding of just the power of thinking along those lines, the thinking that makes us risk averse. Well, 
Building on top of that, when we look at our lives and how to approach getting the life that we want, there can be a belief that if we were really clever, if we had a really good strategy, we wouldn't fail at something. You know what I'd say? It took me a good another 10, 15 years outside of school to learn that actually most of the scientific breakthroughs or I'd say wider technological breakthroughs, I suppose, have come about through trial and error much more than they have through academics sitting in a classroom. I say all that to say that when I circle back to this idea of the law of serendipity, you know what? Life is too unpredictable. You're never going to have a plan for everything that happens, everything that comes your way. So you're much better off to at least look at the things that are around you, take a chance and take action on something, anything. And the more things you try, the more likely you'll see luck plays a part. So that is procrastination. We haven't talked much about memory, so let's get on to that. Again, this was touched in the first episode of Learning How to Learn. First of all, talking about this idea of short-term and long-term memory and that we have this working memory that basically has four slots to it that we're able to play with new information and through a process of things like recall and repetition, we can get something across into our long-term memory. So the idea around memory that gets shared in this particular section is how to harness our visual and spatial memory. You might be the kind of person, and I'm in this boat, that struggles with things like numbers. And one of the ideas communicated here is that although that may be challenging, we have very good uh, visual and spatial memory by default. Now, an idea that's shared around this about why numbers are more difficult is because if you think going back in the days before we had GPS and uh, even working maps of the world around us, we needed to know how to get from our camp to the river, to the woods, to uh, you know the various places we'd stored food. How do we get back to where we've come from? Those sorts of things, navigating around the place. So our visual and spatial memory was very much associated with things that we saw, uh, smells, sights, sounds, that kind of thing. Now, a number, on the other hand, is much more abstract or a name. So that can be much harder to remember. The idea here is that if we can somehow connect those maybe more numerical or abstract ideas to something that's connected to our five senses, we'll remember things a lot easier. So if you're trying to remember something complex, it can be helpful to come up with a, a visual, you know, an image that associates with that particular concept. Um, and in the uh, Learning How to Learn course itself, they look at, I think it's a, a physics um, notation around mass and velocity and all this kind of stuff, which, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head because... Well, I really didn't try. So what can you associate it with visually? The second thing would be even the smell. Can you associate a smell with it? And then uh, the feel. So see again, or a sound. This idea of connecting our senses to something that we need to remember more than just trying to abstractly pin you know, some letters or numbers into our minds can help things become a lot easier. Uh, incidentally too, handwriting has been proven to be very helpful in memorizing things. And I wonder how much our transition away from, you know, handwriting to more digital means of recording things, uh, you know, iPads, computers, laptops, that kind of stuff might be getting in the way. Now, this connects with an earlier idea as well around illusions of competence. You can see something written down on a page, think you understand it and be like, great, let's move on to the next thing. But of course, the moment you try, well, you're in for a rude awakening, aren't you? So 
handwriting things down. And I'll even say for myself, I write down the notes that I'm going to use for these series by hand, even though I still do have the course open in front of me as well. And I can skip backwards and forwards through the tabs that are there. If I forget anything that's particularly important. But I do find this process, if nothing else, is useful for me to embed the ideas or concepts that I'm trying to you know, make a part of my life. So handwriting, use it, it's amazing. Um, and then also too, flashcards. Recall is a really powerful tool. And so what flashcards can do is help you say on the one side, you might have an image or a, um, well, whatever it is you might be trying to recall. And then on the back, there might be uh, you know an associated description or something like that. By being able to flick between those two things, you build that sense of um, association beyond just that abstract concept. Again, there might be a visual cue um, maybe you can have an audiological cue or a feel that you could associate with it yourself as well. But then secondly, being able to recall again and again is one of the most fundamental things that we've covered in learning how to learn. It sounds far too simple, but it is so incredibly effective. So I'd encourage you to make use of that, um, that technique as well, using flashcards to assist with memorizing things. All right, so as we get into this last section on long-term memory, I'd encourage you straight, or, uh, straight away, if you want to find more information beyond what this course covers, check out Elizabeth Loftus. She has a TED Talk on the ideas that we're going to be covering in this section. But fundamentally, it's the idea that our memories are not fixed, that they are a living part of your brain that can change over time. This is so important to understand, I believe, from a getting on with people point of view. How many arguments are really battles of recall? Who remembers what happened, what was said, how it was said, what they meant, those sorts of things, that certain channel of events. Now, most of us get upset because we believe our recollection of the events is correct. And then the other person is maybe either at the best case, uh, misremembering, worst case scenario, that they're being malicious about it or lying to us. Well, I think it's a great leveler to understand that your memories are not fixed, that they are very much influenced by each time you try and recall a memory. So this recall involves a process called reconsolidation. So if you think of it almost like a cycle, that you have your active memory, something that might have happened that you're trying to embed into your long-term memory. And so through a process of repetition and building those chunks of memory and association over time, you manage to put something into your long-term memory. Well, then what happens? Well, what if, what if you need to recall that information in future? Well, that information is re-remembered. So it's, it's recalled and reinstated, comes back into your active memory. And then what do you do with it? Here's the thing. It goes back into your long-term memory by that same process. It's re-remembered. It's reconstructed. Now, memory researchers have shown that you can implant false memories in people through a certain process of getting them to re-recall a situation over and over and over again if they're suggestible enough. And trust me, you don't have to be that uh, suggestible for this still to work on you. It's not just a, like a Jedi mind trick. So again, this process, first of all, for the purposes of the course, is to help us recognize that that is what's going on in our minds, that we are having something in active memory, we move it to long-term memory, and then it's re-remembered and reconstructed back into our active memory, and that cycle goes round and round. So your memories can change over time. Now, what that means for our dealings with one another is I think it should help to make us a little bit more gracious with one another, that our memories can be influenced by different things. And for me, at least, it tells me that, well, look, there's a chance that I don't remember this as accurately as I think I do. And if the other person knows this as well, we can both be a lot more gracious with one another. 
Now, on a neurological point of view, this whole process also reinforces why things like cramming don't work very well. You need time for your brain to build those neural connections and to reinforce them. That is why cramming can work in the short term, but it doesn't work in the long term. The process requires time. Imagine it like uh, growing a garden. Uh, your mind has this incredible, it's almost like a, like a, uh, a vine-like quality. You know, it's growing out, reaching out and, and connecting, interconnecting between different brain cells and neurons and all those sorts of things. It needs time to do that. That is why cramming is not too effective. All right, so as we get towards the end of this, um, one of the ideas too that is reinforced is the idea of building those meaningful connections, meaningful groups of information. That's why things like acronyms can work really well when trying to remember something as well. Uh, anything that you can do to connect new information with information that you already have access to can be really, really powerful. Um, you can even associate things with feelings. Um, so, you know, if you're trying to remember a particular number, Maybe it corresponds to a certain age, you know, that, uh, you know, a particular birthday or a particular year that you went somewhere, something like that. Those can all be really helpful ways of remembering it. And in fact, the examples that are given within the course itself connect to the uh, medical field where there's often a high degree of very complex information. Say, for example, trying to remember the bones of the hand or the skull and there's, you know, seven or eight different um bones that need to be remembered. Old people from Texas eat spiders. That's a way of remembering the cranial bones. Uh, O-P-F-T-E-S. Um, all stand for uh, different names of uh, the, the um, different letters associated with the names of the temporal, of the, of the cranial bones. Um, yes, and before moving on, I had almost completely forgotten to speak about the memory palace idea. Now, when I was talking about meaningful groups, um, the memory palace, on the other hand, is this idea, again, of connecting in our visual and spatial skills to think of a place that you're very familiar with and then associating objects around that house to remind you of different things that you need. So, you know, imagine you needed to go shopping, for example. You might imagine walking into the front of your house and there's an enormous bottle of milk in the, uh, you know, the entranceway of your house. And then if you turn, say, through into the lounge, um, there's a, a loaf of bread sitting on the couch. Uh, and then there's a jar of peanut butter or something sitting on the coffee table. What you can start to do is construct this idea within your own mind of walking around the house, and it'll help you to remember the things that are important to you. Now, like anything, it's an acquired skill, an acquired talent, but by all accounts, it is a highly effective one. So this is another on my to-do list of things that I need to get my head around to try and increase my ability to remember important information. I'm not too bad at the moment because I tend to move towards things that I naturally have effort or naturally have interest in. So there's some energy and excitement about learning those things. But those things that fall outside that, like shopping lists, for example, perhaps this could be a thing that is very helpful for me. So that's the memory palace. And so summing up on all of this, it's all about getting information into meaningful chunks that our mind can remember. And so the procrastination and memory um, elements of this course, I'd highly recommend you to check out yourself. Remember, you can go to Coursera.org, just search Learning How to Learn. It is a free course. It's only four weeks long, and you can take as long as you like to do it. You can just reset your course um, dates, uh, start and finish dates if you need to, because life gets in the way. But I still believe that this idea of learning how to learn things effectively is one of the most transformative that you can ever lay your hands on. So I highly recommend you check it out. Once again, that's Coursera.org. I'll put a link in the description for this episode as well. And we'll be back with episode number four, the final episode in, well, maybe a week or two. 